Welcome to Viewpoint Systems. I'm your host, Henry Grosek, and this is What's Making News. Uh, my co-host, Russell Hanby's champing at the bit. He's got some great topics uh, of which to talk about today, and uh, welcome in saying that to Russell Hanby. How are you? Good, thanks, Henry. How are you today? Very, very good. You've got some good topics there, I see. Yes, we've got comments uh, from the, the week that was, haven't we? The week that was, yes, and some of the things that happened in the week that was will have implications for the future. Have you been flooded out, by the way, just about everybody else has? Yes, no, we haven't actually. We, I think it, uh, it was very isolated yesterday, but places in the hills like Lilydale copped uh, uh, it, didn't they, up mm, there? Mm, it's been, um, and it's going to keep going until December, uh, but next year it looks like it's easing. So if we can make it to next year, um, things are looking, will be looking good. But by gee, it is soggy out there, isn't it? It is indeed, yes. It's very wet underfoot, etc. And, of course, uh, we th- we're still thinking of those people up north with their flooded uh, houses, aren't we, in those country mm, towns. Terrible and still uh, and still going on. But the news that we're covering in the age, to start with, Russell, four new Catholic schools are pledged. Four new Catholic primary schools, a new school campus and upgrades to 13 Catholic and low-fee independent schools have been promised by Premier Daniel Andrews in an election funding pledge valued at $717 million over four years. Interesting, yes. isn't it? Yeah, and the uh, focus is on uh, growth areas, uh, especially uh, west and northeast of Melbourne, including two new schools and an upgrade in state election seats of Yanyin and Melton. Now, these electorates suffer a, suffered a 2 to 3% swing against Labor in the last election. Uh, now, Catholic schools are to receive 70% of the funding for Catholic and independent schools across the state. That's based on the, the proportion of students. And they're also promising $250 million to build and upgrade about 60 kindergartens at Catholic and independent schools. And um, there's a $17 million pledge to expand the Smile Squad free dental van to these schools from 2026. Uh, The opposition has promised $700 million over four years similarly to Catholic and non-government schools. Uh, Education economist Adam Rorris uh, says that the government's first obligation, he feels, is should be to public schools. He can't see how such a high percentage of education funding to non-government schools stacked up from uh, an educational needs-based uh, funding point of view. Mm. It's interesting. I mean, there's quite a bit of money going to 29 public schools being new ones being built. Of course, they're a bit of a no-brainer. You, you, you sort of have to build them. So taking credit for building them is, uh, <laughs> if you don't build them, you're going to cop a lot of stick. And I think 90 schools are being upgraded. But from the public school perspective, um, there's, a, there's a fair bit of disquiet about not so much that the private schools are getting money, though that's an issue, but public schools are still underfunded in Victoria substantially per capita compared to other states, and Victoria still lags behind um, in, in public school funding to its school resource standard, which was the benchmark set in the Gonski report, whereas the vast majority of private schools and Catholic schools uh, are funded at 100% or in some cases even better. So uh, I guess from the public school perspective, get the public school house in order first rather than um, give more money to a sector that's already um, achieving largely the the level of uh, funding that it should be. 
Mm. And uh, and that first paragraph about the uh, electorates, uh, the swinging electorates, uh, has probably got a bit to do with it too. Do you think, or the the, the difficult uh, where they have suffered a swing, a two to three percent swing against Labor last well, time? Well, yeah, but um, when you when you when you're looking at it from a politician's viewpoint, I guess that's a, a different way. I guess I guess something uh, of which um, Premier Andrews, I think, was a member. Of that uh, of that um, government some time ago, um, the Steve Bracks um, and the later on, and they they are the Labor Party and John Brumby uh, governments who lauded Victoria as the education state, and uh, again um, the fact that we receive you know, um, amongst the lowest per capita funding for public school kids in the country, in the education state, uh, it does does puzzle many people in public education, uh, Russell, I would say. Yes, I think so. We t- we've discussed this um, a few times before and come up with a similar result, haven't we? A similar idea. <laughs> well, until <laughs> until they get uh, until they get to like I mean, for people out there, they probably wonder what on earth we're talking about. Well, Gonski set out a plan, um, and in that plan, there was a school resource standard uh, of what they felt was a fair cut of money. Now, the the feds under the coalition. Um, fund 20% for public schools and 80% to private schools and they want the flip side for the states. And, of course, Victoria's been in an argy-bargy state with the feds over that and we don't even get to 75% of the 80% here. Um, The old funding model was such that it was 75-25, but the coalition government made it 80-20. Well, in that argument about whether it should be 75-25-80-20, the Victorian government have been stuck on something below 75% for some time, and when we've had... Uh, issues such as the time in lieu issue, uh, which is costing schools money and there's no recompense in their budgets, where a few years ago the cleaning uh, system, contract system was overhauled and many schools now have to pay out of their budgets for cleaning that erstwhile was done from a provided budget, the giveaway computers a year or two ago, you know, and... um, and so on, schools are struggling for money. A lot of public schools are struggling for money. And uh, uh, to see so much money going to private schools, uh, it, it, it sort of um, it irks, I guess. Yeah, that would be the word, I suppose, for it. And uh, would this be about the worst it's been, do you think? Or is it always, I know it's been like this for some time, hasn't it? But it's not getting much better, is it? No, well, I think what's happening is... Um, it's it's reflected in people walking away from the profession. I mean, uh, we can't get enough people in the profession and we can't get enough people in leadership. I mean, it doesn't matter what you say and it doesn't matter how you dress things up. If you're having trouble keeping four-year trained people in a profession for more than two or three years, well, they're speaking with their feet and the consequence is that uh, the, the children... Yeah, you know the the people who lead our country next in the in the next uh, twenty thirty years, they're not going to get the education that they need. And most kids go to public schools; they don't go to private schools. 
Mm. So that's, anyway, that's the... um, so yeah. Look, uh, and there is money set aside, but uh, most of that's for shiny new buildings. There is one really good initiative which the state government ought to be applauded for, and that is the mental health fund. Um, well-being and health is a care is hugely important, and the pandemic has um, has has amplified that. And uh, there's a substantial amount of money going into that. And I think the feds have put a lot of money into that too. So um, credit where credit's due, and and that and that's a that's a, a great one and most most welcome. Um, but we also need money for infrastructure, things like uh, computers and software and technicians. Uh, Costs have escalated exponentially, um, but we haven't seen a commensurate increase in infrastructure money. It's a bit more invisible than a shiny new building or, you know, a new roof on your school or a new hall or something. Um, but that, that stuff there is desperately needed too. Now, while we're on education, there's another topic. Lost years um, in the Herald Sun. Do you think that's fair, that headline? Well, it says lost, lost years. Uh, Victorian high school students have become a lost generation, missing more than 7 million days of school, six weeks for each child in the past year. I suppose they're saying lost years. You won't get them back ever. Uh, now, 250,000 senior students altogether miss school from sickness, mental health, what they call mental health doona days, uh, family holidays in term times and truancy. Now, that includes 22 days of approved absence for 7 to 10s and 17 days in year 11 and 12. Now, unapproved absences, those not logged by parents, average two weeks a year or, as they say, nine days a, a student for 2021. Now, year 7 to 10s miss almost half a week more of school compared with 10 years ago. And the why? Well, they sort of answer this in the, the paper. Uh, student anxieties, indulgence by parents, more family holidays, um, staff shortages and sickness, etc. RMIT senior education lecturer David Armstrong said these absences cause disruption for learning. And other factors include a reluctance to attend school during COVID times. Now, teacher absences and shortages compound the problem and Australian Catholic University Professor John Munro said students have none of the classroom support that they get by going to school, by staying at home or doing online learning. And uh, the days off for no specific reason went from 1.7 million altogether in 2019 to 2.5 million in 2020. So that's the article there about the number of days off that students are having. Mm, yeah, look, um, it is a lost year in some respects and uh, that can be quite devastating too, granted. But um, lost is a little strong because, um, and, and, I, and I'm not advocating adversity as something wonderful, but um, there were also some, some things that we, we gained and learnt from being uh, through the pandemic. Um, some of those things are not measurable, uh, but uh, lost is, I think, um, <laughs> is a little bit too strong. It means like you got nothing at all from it. Back and that, and that they're doomed by it, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. Um, and uh, while, uh, while we don't choose adversity, adversity can also have some benefits overall. And the last point I make on that, Russell, it's all very well with hindsight, but when we were right in that pandemic, and our school was one of many, we just didn't have the staff. So they were off 
they were off. How, how do you have kids at school when you don't have the staff? And it's easy for people out there to say, well, you know, it's a bad thing. They should have been at school. But you, they couldn't be at school. Um, no. They, they, were, they were either. And, and we were learning on the run. We hadn't experienced a pandemic before any of us. And uh, lots of mistakes were made. Lots of learnings were made. I mean, if we had another pandemic next year, we'd, the whole world would treat it differently. And all over the world, people were changing policy, you know, by the week, uh, on, on almost everything. You know, one minute we couldn't let kids on playground equipment because they might catch the virus, and the next week that was okay, and etc., etc., etc. And uh, a hell of a lot of fear mongering going on out there, too, and uh, a lot of other political issues got caught up in it. So, yes, um, I, I don't know without the benefit of hindsight how it could be better, but I think that the real issue now is what do we do post? pandemic and we've got to pick up the slack on there and there's a lot of work to be done particularly for a number of well adults and children you know the the some kids have come out of that quite poorly others haven't and we've all learned some lessons um but uh when you say what is it there they said um seven million days of school well when you aggregate data you go oh that's a lot um, but it's six weeks per child. <laughs> it can look a lot worse when you, in in how you choose to present data, because six million, seven million days it didn't apply to any children. It's it's <laughs> six, it's six weeks, and you can make it look worse than it is. But certainly, and I think governments, and I, I mentioned this in our earlier article, Russell. Um, there's a enormous amount of resources being channeled into mental health and well-being uh, by by our state government and the federal government and I know that the alternative uh, government in Victoria has promised similar so um, we've acknowledged it and let's get on with the job. We need to take a short break. Can you hold the line, Russell? Yes, certainly. And welcome back to Viewpoints, listeners. You're listening to What's Making News with uh, Henry Grossack, and I'm Russell Hanby. So welcome back after the break, Henry. Welcome back, Russell. Yes, um, we've done a bit of a flip there, and uh, oh, I could just uh, relax for a fraction longer. Well done. You've um, you've obviously got a lot of experience in radio, I would guess. <laughs> well, <laughs> I guess so, yeah. <laughs> Well, now that we're back, Russell, I'll take the cue from you. The age, La Nina to ease, but storms are on the horizon. The La Nina weather system that has broken rainfall records across much of Victoria and New South Wales is forecast to ease in December with normal summer conditions to return early next year. And that's on the back of, as we mentioned at the beginning, the terrible floods in parts of Victoria and much of New South Wales. Yes, and uh, most uh, Bureau of Meteorology models uh, predict a short-lived event that would uh, weaken, as we say, by December. Now, weather zone meteorologist Felix Levesque says we should return to a a neutral phase after three back-to-back La Ninas, and he predicts El Nino will be the next likely uh, climate driver. However, he did warn the climate drivers causing the wet weather we've got could linger longer than current models indicated. Now, coming up uh, shortly are two low-pressure systems about to collide. One's near the Victoria-New South Wales border and one's off the north coast of New South Wales. And that can lead to heavy rain to eastern Victoria, southeast New South Wales and eastern Tasmania until at least the end of this week. So uh, we're not out of the woods just yet, are we? 
No, 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 we're not out of the woods and there's such a... And the ground is so soggy. I mean, I, I, I guess that the um, groundwater levels must... The underground water levels must be pretty pretty high too, uh, Russell, which means that when it rains, you it, it certainly... Everything overflows pretty quickly. Yes, it does. You can tell we've got a local track, a bike track near here, and there's a sort of a creek. And even last night, even though we didn't get much rain where I was, uh, it sort of had obviously flooded over. You could tell them the next day. Absolutely. Um, but uh, we've also got to be careful because if you read it carefully, Russell, there are qualifications there. They don't say will. They, they talk about probabilities, don't they? Yes, that's right. I suppose that's what you have to do with weather predictions, isn't it? It's all based on, I guess, modelling and probabilities of likeliness, etc. And I think it's both more interesting and more challenging to be a weather forecaster for certain parts of the world than others. I mean, there are places that have – you go to Singapore, for example – it's pretty similar. Even if you get it wrong, it'll just be a couple of degrees and it'll yeah. just be a bit of humidity here and there and a bit more or less rain. But generally, they don't get four seasons in the one day uh, unexpectedly in places like Singapore and many others. You go to the Gulf states, you get, you know, um, dry, hot weather for a long, long time. I mean, if you go to central Australia, yeah, you might get a flood, but there's lots and lots and lots and lots of weeks where the weather's pretty much the same. So, yeah, doing the weather forecasting for Melbourne is uh, and Victoria is not necessarily easy, is it? No, that's right. And it's sort of almost unpredictable, as we, as we found out in many cases. Absolutely. Now, what's this? Is your mum getting older? Or... <laughs> <laughs> well, well, mums are getting older. Um, Australians are having more babies later in life uh, following the record dip in fertility rates during the pandemic. New figures from the Australian Bureau of Statistics earlier this week revealed the nation's fertility rate bounced back last year after a slump in 2020. Now, in 2020, the fertility rate rose to 1.7 babies per mother, uh, and uh, compared with 2020, that's 15 and a half thousand additional babies born, a rise of 5.3 percent on the previous year. Uh, now, in 2020, 1.59 babies per mother, and in, that's uh, a, a slight uh, increase. Uh, no, a decrease, wasn't it? In 2021, it was 1.7, and the previous year, 1.59. Now, going back to 2008, it was 2.02. Now, they've also found, as regards the ages, the age 35 to 39 uh, for women, the rate doubled in the past 30 years. And for the 40 to 44-year-olds, the rate almost tripled. Now, in 2019, women typically gave birth at the age of 31.5 years. In 2021, it's slightly higher, 31.7. Men were 33.5 in 2019 compared with 33.7 in 2021. Uh, interestingly, teenagers, the fertility rate there is at the lowest ebb. Only five, just over 5,000 babies were born in 2021. And so the highest fertility rates are the 30 to 34-year-olds. In, in 2021, 76.5,000 babies were born. That's up 2.4% on 2020. Now, Victoria recorded one of the lowest fertility rates for several years. In 2019, it was 1.55, 2020, 1.46, and back a bit higher, 1.53 in 2021. And so summarising, the fertility rate and median age has risen in older age groups, partly because people are putting off having babies later, and also the fact that the teenagers have dropped down, and that would affect the, the median age.
Mm, it's an interesting stat. Um, it's interesting. Also, men on average are older than women when they have their first uh, have a child. It's uh, 33.7 in 2021 for men and 31.7. It's a two-year difference there, isn't it? Yes. I wonder if it relates also to the fact that when they get – when people – become partners or married and the man has been traditionally slightly older do you think it just carries through that could well be part of the part of the point too russell it, that would make sense because that that's a tradition may change and it's not exclusive but uh, interesting um interesting stats mums are getting older of course they'll be older still when their children get to teenagehood and it'll be to see how how older parents handle teenagers compared to younger parents when they when they had them they might find they just get a little bit tight or they might their wisdom and their experience might work the other way around better prepared Another, we talked about that, uh, the 30-year-olds having the children, but in 1966 to 1976, the average age of mothers then was less than 26 to have their, their babies. So yes, it certainly absolutely. has changed, hasn't it? How mm. old were you when you had your first baby in your family? Uh, let me see. It was uh, I was 1975 was the first one, and that would make me uh, uh, 31. 31? Yes. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. Russell, the odd <laughs> spot to finish up on. Yes. Lauren and Chris Meehan were excited to meet their twin newborn daughters in the Denver Hospital delivery room as two teams of doctors and two teams of nurses did their work. But those in the room suddenly became quiet as the couple told them they'd chosen Emma and Julie for their baby's names. Now, the names were also those of the nurses helping in the births. So Nurse Emma helped deliver baby Emma, while Nurse Julie delivered baby Julie. Mum Lauren, also a nurse, described the coincidence as that little moment of joy. <laughs> oh, how wonderful. That's a, a, a real coincidence, isn't it? Oh, very much, yes. You, 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 couldn't have, you couldn't have orchestrated that if you tried in about 99.9% .9 of hospitals. No, that's right. You'd, you'd be rare to find that coincidence, wouldn't Absolutely. you? Absolutely. Well, thank you for uh, swapping around in the middle of the uh, What's Making News. Um, we might just get you to do the whole introduction thing. <laughs> oh, well, I think you've, you've done a good job, though, over the last 20 years or so. You know? oh, what do you think? It's time I moved over. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll be back next week. That was Russell Hanby and What's Making News, listeners.